It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, it's Claudia here, and you are listening to The Slow Newscast, a weekly investigative show where we tell stories that really matter. Stories about what's driving the news, not breaking news. This week, it's spiking, specifically spiking by injection, and the hundreds of reports of these attacks that hit the headlines across the UK last autumn. But is needle spiking a new kind of threat to be feared, or is there something else going on? I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Patricia Clark, who has been working out what really happened. So I'm just at the crossroads where I would normally go down the canal on my run, but this morning it's still a bit too dark, so I'm going to turn up towards the main road where there's some lampposts and it's a bit brighter. Back in September of last year, I was getting up early, much earlier than I normally do, because I was training for a half marathon. Even at 7am, London felt like it was buzzing. Children were heading back to school for the start of a new term and students were packing their bags on their way to college or university. It was a couple of months before Omicron had entered our vocabulary. And even though the pandemic was far from over, it was starting to feel like things might be getting back to normal. But there was a darkness to that time of year too. Everything may have been opening up, but in many ways, the outside world felt more hostile than ever. Forensic teams search for clues. On the 17th of September, a young woman called Sabina Nessa was killed in a park in southeast London. She was on her way to meet a friend. Police believe Sabina Nessa was attacked in this park at around... Eight- Sabina's was the latest in a spate of brutal murders of young women during the pandemic. Sarah Everard, Nicole Smallman, Bieber Henry, to name only a few. And for me, I started running in the morning because it felt safer that way. Avoiding the unlet canal path at night and instead heading up towards the main road where I could be seen. A small personal decision made in the backdrop of this overwhelming news. They're voicing their fears, their fury that our society doesn't protect women. They're demanding change. And Women's trust in the authorities was at an all-time low, and fear was high. And it was around the time of Sabina's death that reports started emerging of a new danger. Yeah, police are currently dealing with a wave of reports of spikings by injections at nightclubs and parties. It wasn't the spiking we already know about. They weren't accounts of people slipping something into women's drinks. 
These were reports of literal spiking with needles. I mean, yeah, spiking drinks is bad enough, but, but using syringes in busy nightclubs is just awful. Well, it's terrifying. There are all Viral TikToks showed people lying unconscious in hospital beds after nights out or being carried to urgent care services by their friends. Some of them had millions of views. Like, is this real? Is this actually happening? Is this, is this real in England? The story even made it across the Atlantic. The New York Times called injection spiking a new kind of assault in the UK. The Washington Post said it was a safety crisis. There was fear everywhere. The threat of injection felt real. And at a first glance, it all felt plausible. I think that that discrepancy is enough to say that it's very unlikely that injection spiking is a widespread phenomenon that has affected, you know, say, hundreds of women across the UK. It wasn't long before questions were asked. Experts couldn't verify the reports. There were gaps in the evidence. The timing felt strange too. If nothing like this has ever been seen before, how is it possible that new attacks are happening all at once across the entire UK? I'm Patricia Clark, and this week on the Slow Newscast, I'm investigating something which I'm now convinced didn't happen, an epidemic of needle spiking. But this story is no less important, or serious, for that. Do you remember the first time that you heard about needle spiking in the UK? Uh, I do. It was during autumn 2021, and I think I saw something on Twitter. And how did reading that make you feel? I found that such a mix of things. Very distressing, terrifying. It made me incredibly angry. I mean, you know, how many different ways can we frighten women, really? This is Lucy Ward. Lucy is a writer and journalist. Her youngest daughter, who she's asked us not to name, has just started studying at a university in England. It's her first time living alone. Of course you react as a, as a mother with two girls, and by the way, of course, and a son. But I think it was more on the wider level of thinking about young women generally. She sent her daughter a message, asking what she'd heard. And then she sent me this very fiery and heartfelt explanation of how she felt the lives of herself and her friends were kind of circumscribed. Lucy's right. It was a fiery message. Paragraphs and paragraphs. It was an outpouring of fear and frustration. We keep our phones on and in our hands. Girls are wearing denim jackets because the material is harder to pierce. We simply accept the latest horror and come up with new ways to protect ourselves. And of course, remain weak and vulnerable anyway. Her daughter's message was so powerful that Lucy posted screenshots of it to her Twitter account. The caption to her post called needle spiking a horrific new variant in the epidemic of drink spiking targeting young women. The tweet went viral. You know, knowingly or, or unknowingly, for many people, I think your tweet might have been the first experience of this story of spiking with needles, right? I guess I wonder, what was the response to your tweet like eventually? It sort of went viral. But, you know, lots of people responded to it. Um, yeah, that's why it's difficult because I'm not, wasn't operating as a journalist and, you know, so it didn't kind of, I didn't have that kind of head on when I put it out there. As journalists, we're always told to look at the evidence first. 
But that's not what Lucy was doing when she posted her tweet. She was acting off instinct, a gut feeling. And when I ask her about why she chose to post anyway, she says the spiking, the needles, to her, that's missing the point. What matters to her is the fear that women were experiencing. For me, though, that's not what I felt when I read her tweet. After all, she called it a horrific new variant in an epidemic. I, I really want to stress, I, we can go down the spiking route if you want. And of course, people responded to that. And of course, they're extremely shocked by the notion of that. But to me, I think the biggest shock, or the thing that I found most kind of heart-wrenching wasn't the notion of whether spiking itself happens. It's more that women feared it, thought it was entirely plausible. Plausible. And then took precautions. That's exactly what I felt when I first heard the accounts of needle spiking. Why else would people, mostly women, be presenting in hospital with no memory of the day before, with wounds on their thighs and backs? And after such a hostile year, injection spiking really wasn't beyond the realm of imagination. It was just another thing for us to protect ourselves from. Lucy posted her tweet on the 19th of October, two weeks after Wayne Cousins, a serving police officer, was sentenced to a whole lifetime for the kidnap, rape and murder of Sarah Everard. It was also a month into the university term, those weeks when students are going out almost every night, getting to know the people around them. According to the police, that's also when reports of drink spiking always increase. So the injections, the threat to women's safety, it was all plausible. And yet, despite all of the noise on social media, nobody actually had all the facts. Some police forces were investigating reported cases at the time, but there wasn't a single confirmed instance of needle spiking anywhere in the country. The fear was understandable. So was the desire for women to protect themselves and others. But the posts that were meant to keep women safe had the opposite effect. They made us more scared. By posting about the fear, we were only perpetuating it. You know, this is social media. I didn't, you know, it's not my job to report it. It's someone else's job to, but it is somebody's job to investigate it, for sure. And if what comes out of that is that this, you know, has never happened, okay, that's, you know, isn't that nice news? Good. The, the big lesson from this is, well, you can take the lesson from it as, oh, look, somebody said something and it's not, uh, it wasn't quite true. And we can all go, silly girls, they believe something that wasn't true. Or silly mum, she believes something. Or we can say, why did they feel terrified about this? Why did they feel it was so plausible? Lucy's right. We didn't know what was happening at the time. We still don't, really. I've headed up to Edinburgh, a city where there are 64,000 students, to meet a victim of suspected injection spiking. It was actually on the train ride up there that I learned something that completely changed the way I think about spiking. It was about Rohypnol. You know, the most famous spiking drug out there. That's where we get the word roofie, the so-called date rape drug. Turns out, rohypnol isn't actually that common as a drink spiking drug at all. In fact, the majority of studies, and there are several, 
suggests that people presenting to emergency services with spiking symptoms have actually consumed large amounts of alcohol or common recreational drugs like cocaine or MDMA. There's actually one seven-year study from Norway that really stood out. It found that just 9% of people presenting to sexual assault centres with suspected drink-spiking symptoms had sedatives in their systems that they didn't take themselves. This ingrained idea we have about roofies, it might be 91% wrong. But, and I want to be clear here, that doesn't mean no one is being spiked. Alcohol spiking is much more common than we think it is. A man might add a double shot to a woman's drink without her consent, for example. That is still spiking. Slipping other party drugs like MDMA into someone's drink is spiking too, and it's equally hard to trace. If someone was already drinking or taking drugs, it's much harder to tell if something was added to their drink. All of this information is out there. Experts are very clear about it. But none of it has changed how we think about spiking, or how we as a society respond to it. Which all takes me back to Edinburgh. We're doing an investigation about that. If drink spiking is this badly understood, what on earth is going on with needle spiking? We're here to speak to some young women who think that, that it happened to them. And I'm in the city to meet a student called Becca McAnally. Like Lucy's daughter, Becca started university this year when she was just 17. It was her first time away from home and everything was new. Going to university is always a scary moment. You're living on your own for the first time, meeting course mates and housemates. You have this newfound independence. For students who started university in 2021, that thrill and that pressure are even bigger. Most people Becca's age lost out on their last two years of secondary school. Those are the years when you start going out, when you're experimenting, learning what it's like to be independent. COVID took away all of that. It was already disconcerting to enter packed nightclubs and bars after two years of lockdowns. Reports of needle spiking meant the atmosphere was terrifying. So I've spoken to a few young women like you, and a lot of them said that around the time, around October, there was this real atmosphere of fear around going out because yeah. they'd seen all the stuff on social media. Was that something that you can relate to? Yeah, I definitely I definitely felt scared because it was on the night of my birthday, um, which is the 28th of October, Edinburgh had a club strike, so every club just decided to shut because everybody just, was just like refusing to go. There was a lot of scare around it, and that's why we decided not to go out. Back in October, near the start of the university term, a group of women organised a countrywide boycott of nightclubs. The movement was called Girls' Night In, and women across over 50 towns and cities in the UK vowed to stop going out until spiking was taken seriously in venues. In Edinburgh, that boycott took place on October 28th, the same night as Becca's 18th birthday. At that point, the posts on social media were at their peak. That's so interesting. So on the night of your birthday, there was a, a yeah. strike because yeah. of the spiking thing. Yeah, so we were actually planning going out and then I read, read it and we were like, right, we'll just have a night in. Becca was keen to celebrate with her new university friends. It was her 18th, after all. But because people weren't going to clubs, the big house party felt like the obvious choice. I decided to spend it here rather than back home because my flatmates, we all wanted to do something, we thought, because the boys had like won their football match and stuff, like everyone was just in such a good mood. So we all went to my flat, there must be about like, I think maybe like 40, 50 people there, like roughly. And most of the people were people that I knew and people from my accommodation. However, there was like some people that 
like I just assumed like oh my flatmates will know them or the boys from the football team will know them because at this point we'd only been living there for a month so I couldn't really be expected to know everyone however I thought because I was in my own flat that'd be completely fine um, so I could hear everyone in my kitchen it was so loud and um, I was still getting ready. Becca wasn't with them just yet she was actually late for her own birthday party still getting ready in the room next door. I went in at maybe about like 11 o'clock because I realised I was like, right, I need to kind of go in and show face considering the fact that it was my birthday. Everyone had had a few drinks by the time she arrived, but Becca says she was still sober. Over the course of the evening, she had a couple of drinks, but not that many. Somewhere between two and four, she says. And up until like about like half twelve, everyone was just singing. I remember everyone singing happy birthday exactly at 12 o'clock, which was really cute. Like, it was so fun. Last thing I remember, everyone was just in the best mood and I cannot remember a single thing after that. That moment is etched in her memory. But after that, the lights go out. And at what point did you think, I think I've been spiked? Well, it was my flatmate that mentioned it to me in passing. She was like, maybe you've been spiked. And I just thought, no, that's not happened. And I just completely denied it. I think I was just too scared to admit it. And then I think it was just like fixing my pyjamas or something. I realised like I had like a lump and it was like on the side of my leg. And I thought, maybe I've just like hit, hit it. But I knew that it wasn't really a lump out of like a like bump in my leg or anything. Like it was, that, it was like really like hard, I don't know how to explain it. And then it was when I was walking past the mirror, like my friends were like, Becca, maybe go and look at it closer. And then we did, and we realised it was like a pinprick, just a wee tiny red mark. And then afterwards it started bruising quite badly, like around it, so we realised like it was maybe a lot more serious than what I'd thought it was. Becca showed me a picture of the bruise she found on her hip. It was angry, reddened, just like the ones I'd seen on social media a few months ago. It had a red mark in the centre too. Becca's experience is fairly representative of other known spiking cases. Sickness, along with a sudden loss of memory and control. I wanted to get drug tested and I said this on the phone just because I thought I could just go to A&E and they were like, no. There was no CCTV in the flat, so there wasn't much she could do to find out what had really happened. She started by ringing NHS 24, Scotland's medical hotline. They basically just said they couldn't do anything about it, which I was obviously completely disheartened by because they said like, it was a place that deal with it rather than NHS. She called the police a few days later and they eventually visited her back in her student accommodation. So they came and visited me and they pretty much told me I could do a urine test for up to a week after it happened. However, it would take a year to come back, which was not something I wanted to like wait for. So yeah, just kind of, they told me I could report it and um, I, was th- I was considering it massively, but when they came, they kind of just tried to discourage me from reporting it, which I don't think they meant to do, because they did keep continuously say they didn't want to discourage me, but they just kept telling me there's no CCTV at my accommodation, so there was no way to track every single person who was there. One police officer was particularly kind and supportive, but ultimately, reporting what had happened to her felt like a lost cause. Um, they said they'd have to get a statement from every single person. Which police said that they would have to get everyone who came to the party to fill out a statement which felt humiliating to Becca. It also would have been hard to track those people down, especially because she didn't know everyone who was there. More surprisingly, at least to me, was that the police told Becca that her toxicology report could take a full year to come back. So if she had been spiked, it would be months before she'd find out for sure. She didn't want that looming over her. So Becca didn't report to the police, and she couldn't get a test from the NHS either. Feeling powerless and frustrated, she posted on Twitter. 
She wanted to raise awareness and help other people who were feeling as scared and lost as she was. And her post was one of many. Across the country, she joined a growing number of women and men doing the same. Hi, Sophia. Hi. It was around this time, as reports flooded social media, that the story caught the attention of Sophia Smith-Gaylor, a senior reporter at Vice World News. She also has a big following on TikTok. And what was your initial reaction to those reports? My initial reaction was that I started thinking, wow, if this is the case, why, why haven't the police said anything? Why haven't healthcare services said anything? It sounds like the kind of thing that if this was happening, you'd have a really rapid response to it. And, and was that something that you'd heard of outside of work or, well, you know, while you were at college, university? Was that something that you'd ever come across? I'm very aware of drink spiking. I, I know people personally who have been drink spiked in the past. I have never heard of injection spiking and neither had our global drugs editor at Vice World News, who's Max Daly, who's just an expert on all things drugs. And when he said, I've never heard of this before, that's when I thought, oh, okay, I'm, we're not barking up the wrong tree here. If, if, if this has never happened before, what, what could this be? Are we, are we seriously beholding a new criminal phenomenon before us? Or is there a little bit more to it? So back in October, Sophia began to dig deeper. She wrote an article in which her key finding was that this hadn't been adequately investigated. And, given the available evidence, injection spiking on this scale just didn't seem likely. Sophia also posted her story on TikTok, where she has 300,000 followers. Some experts are trying to figure out, what on earth is this? And that's where it gets weird. The backlash was swift. A lot of the comments on her post show confusion and concern. Here are just a few of them. Girls have woken up with a mark from a needle and blacking out. The fact they're not experts doesn't make them wrong about what happened to them. To hear this invalidation is scary, especially from another woman. I'm anxious that this video is now going to be misconstrued and used by men to push the idea that women are overdramatic. We walk a fine line as journalists. It's our job to look at the evidence, to speak to experts and to share our findings with the public. But the evidence isn't always there. We know, for example, that other cases of assault like rape are woefully underreported, and that doesn't mean they're not happening. So I don't want to jump the gun with this kind of reporting. The last thing we need is for more people not to believe women's testimonies. But when there are serious gaps in the evidence, you have to keep asking questions. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? If it's possible, how are we going to do that? 
I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. My name's Adam Woff. I work with drugs and the harm reduction charity, The Loop. Adam is part of the senior team at The Loop, an organization that specializes in drug safety and harm reduction. I wanted to speak to Adam to understand this idea of plausibility. At a first glance, it sounds like injecting a stranger with a drug might not be that hard. After all, we're in the midst of a global vaccination campaign. Tens of thousands of people are getting jabbed every single day. And it happens in films all the time. The season finale of the hit Netflix series You showed the main character sedating a woman by injecting her with poison. He makes it look quite easy. He stabs her in the thigh and she collapses to the ground instantly. That aired on the 15th of October, just two weeks before Becca's birthday. There are famous examples throughout history too. In the 70s, the Bulgarian dissident Georgi Markov was notoriously stabbed with a poison-tipped umbrella on Waterloo Bridge. It was laced with ricin, and he died soon after. But, according to Adam, the reality of injecting strangers with drugs is a little bit more complicated than TV shows or organized criminals make it seem. So imagine I'm at a nightclub or a house party. Can you talk me through exactly what kind of scenario would be necessary in order for a potential perpetrator to to administer drug via injection? So when you're thinking about injecting drugs, I guess the most common way that people will think about injecting drugs is injecting in, into a vein. So, so that's not really something that is plausibly going to be happening because, you know, as anyone who's been to a hospital and had bloods done, you know, there's a bit of a process of finding a vein and it's not something that you could do, you know, while the person was unaware of it. But drugs, as well as being injected in vein, they can be injected in other ways. And I think, you know, the most plausible other way that drugs could be injected would be into someone's muscle and to think through at a house party you know in what circumstance can someone inject a drug into you without you realizing they're going to have to use a pretty thin needle so different drugs are injected through different sized needles depending on the quantity of the drug that has to be injected Adam and other medical professionals we spoke to all agreed that administering drugs by intramuscular injection is difficult and painful. There are many different drugs that can be used to sedate people by injection. Ketamine is one, but you'd need a lot of it, 100 to 200 milligrams. That means you need to inject it slowly to get it all into the body. Or you'd have to have quite a fat needle. When ketamine uses intramuscular inject, it's not the case that you can just stab yourself, you know, in, in the upper buttocks or into a large muscle and inject the ketamine straight away. So people who inject ketamine will generally do it over the course of half a minute or a minute and they'll massage the injection site. So it's when you're thinking of what, you know, what would happen at a, at a house party, a lot of drugs, you know, you, you would have to be sat there for half a minute or a minute while it was being slowly injected and causing quite a bit of pain. Other common spiking drugs are benzodiazepines, which are sedatives. These can be potent at smaller doses, like half a milligram, meaning they could be administered quickly with a thin needle. The same is true for GHB, 
a depressant that can be taken orally or injected. But in order to inject someone with those, the person administering the drug would have to have access to an injectable version of this drug, and a syringe, and they'd have to know just how much to administer. Too much, and you'd be seeing far more people in hospital with overdoses. This is particularly true for GHB, where the difference between the desired dose and a life-threatening dose is minimal. In other words, the person administering the drug would have to be a trained criminal. Given what Adam has explained, that just doesn't sound realistic, especially when reports were all happening at a similar time. This would have had to be a coordinated, countrywide attack to be true. How likely do you think it is that women are being injected by needles in nightclubs and at house parties? And why? I think that there could be odd occasions where injection spiking is happening um, and I wouldn't want to ever say it's impossible or completely rule it out. But I think administering a drug via a needle, injecting someone you know, in, in the muscle um, is not necessarily an easy process and isn't something that many people would be able to do. I think that the victim would be likely to notice it um, or feel it. And I think as well that, you know, crucially, when someone is injected with a needle, that injects drugs into their body. And these drugs, you would expect, would be picked up on toxicology. So I think that when one looks at the number of reports that have been made across the country in the hundreds and the amount of evidence that there is in terms of toxicology and in terms of, you know, attacks being caught on CCTV or someone seeing the person inject them, I think that that discrepancy is enough to say that it's very unlikely that injection spiking is a widespread phenomenon that has affected, you know, say, hundreds of women across the UK. Like with drink spiking, there are caveats that we need to consider. Adam talked a lot about toxicology. That's when doctors or the police take urine and blood tests to check if drugs are in someone's system. The most common spiking drugs will stay in your system from two days to a week. But GHB leaves the system in 12 hours. So it's possible that some people aren't getting positive results because they didn't make it to the police or a hospital in time. So if injecting is unlikely, what explains the bruises that women were finding on their bodies? The puncture wounds? That was something I was wondering. So I put together a document with some of the pictures I could find online, from articles, tweets, TikToks. There are about 20. And I showed them to a critical care doctor called Thomas Frost. He said that about half of the marks he looked at looked more like skin abrasions. So if someone had presented with them at a clinic, he wouldn't have suspected injection was at play. He also said you actually tend to bruise when you're injecting into the vein, not the muscle. If you think about the vaccine, those injections don't tend to leave a bruise. What the experts are saying matches up with the current evidence about injection spiking. 1,382 cases of spiking by injection have been reported to UK police forces in September of 2021. These are cases where people self-reported as a suspected spiking. But even now, five months after the reports emerge, there are still no confirmed cases anywhere in the country. This means there are no medical tests proving injection. Police Scotland also carried out a separate investigation into 51 cases of spiking. They published a report in January saying they found no evidence in any of these cases either. Of course, 
some victims aren't getting tested at all because they don't know where to go. Like Becca, they'll go back and forth between the police and hospitals. Does that sound like, does that make sense to you? Yeah, definitely. Um, the advisory council on the misuse of drugs, which is um, which advised the government on uh, different matters around illicit substances, they did a report and they gave advice around drink spiking and drug facilitated sexual assault in, in general. And they gave advice that there needed to be, you know, if, if someone presents... Um, alleging that they've been spiked, there needs to be early evidence kits to get samples fast because of this exact issue. A lot of women that I saw accounts from gave exactly the same story you did, that they turned up at hospital and the hospital said, well, there's nothing wrong with you. It's not a medical matter. You need to speak to the police. And the police basically said, well, if there's been no further sexual assault, we're not interested in it. And it wasn't investigated. And I certainly think that one, those people have been very much let down. And two, that needs to be better practice going forwards, that if someone presents alleging that they've been spiked, that these tests are done immediately. The people that are getting tests aren't necessarily getting answers either. The most compelling evidence I've seen in favour of needle spiking was from one of the police forces I contacted. They said that they have records of two cases of penetration by a needle, confirmed by medical professionals. Both were related to reports of spiking by injection, and both happened in the past few months. But even then, the toxicology reports still haven't come back, so we don't know for certain whether those victims were spiked. When I asked the police force how long it would take to get results, they said it can take up to a year. That's a long time to sit with that uncertainty. Several of the other police forces I spoke to are still awaiting toxicology reports from months ago meaning we can't entirely rule out spiking. On the balance of evidence, though, even the lack of testing and underreporting from victims don't account for the hundreds of reports that we're seeing across the country. For that many attacks to be happening at once, we'd be seeing at least some confirmed cases. It's equally likely that at least one of the victims would have caught the injector red-handed, holding a syringe. No one I've spoken to has seen anything like this, not while they were being injected, not even on CCTV. The more I dig into it, the less likely it seems. All of this begs the question, what actually is happening? And if you were in my position, like trying to figure out what's going on, what would you do next? Who would you want to speak to? And and what kind of questions would you want answered? I guess something something that I'm interested in is looking at the evidence around whether people's expectations that they've been spiked could be causing some of the reaction. There have been a number of cases around the world where, you know, when people think that they've been exposed to a drug, that their body on a completely subconscious level mimics the effect of the drug. Adam is one of three experts we spoke to who raised this as a possibility. Victims might be experiencing symptoms entirely real symptoms driven by profound psychological effects. At first, I was sceptical, but there was one case study that helped me make sense of this. It was about fentanyl. You've probably heard of it. It's a synthetic drug that's 50 times more powerful than heroin, and it's a key player in the US opioid crisis. 
It's responsible for thousands of deaths across the United States. An East Liverpool officer accidentally overdosed on fentanyl after searching a vehicle with drugs inside. Investigators say the driver of the vehicle was covered in a white powdery substance. That started- in 2017, reports emerged about a U.S. police officer who was recovering after a fentanyl overdose. He was nearly killed after searching a car that had fentanyl inside. After he brushed it off his clothes, it triggered a severe reaction and he ended up in urgent care. He wasn't the only one. Over the past few years, dozens of police officers, mostly men, have reported symptoms after coming into contact with a drug. Some of them have been severe, almost deadly. Disorientation, trouble breathing, even cardiac arrest. The thing is, you can't get high from touching fentanyl. Yes, it's one of the most powerful drugs out there, stronger than heroin and morphine but it's just not medically possible to feel its effects by touching it. And yet, the officers still got ill. So ill that they ended up in hospital. But none of the reported fentanyl cases have been confirmed as overdoses. There were no traces of drugs in the officers' systems. Most experts suggest that the symptoms that these officers were facing were psychological. One study explicitly attributed the symptoms to misinformation about the risk of fentanyl in the police they found that about 80% of officers still believed you can get high from touching or breathing in fentanyl. And actually, officers in the US are now receiving training to better understand its effects. When I think about those swathes of social media posts about needle spiking, the horrible bruises all over my timeline, the reported symptoms of sickness and memory loss, it doesn't surprise me that people were scared. When those symptoms are continuously reported online, without input from experts, and linked to a new, unproven medical phenomenon, then I think that is misinformation. None of this is to say that the fear isn't justified. The context of the pandemic, the massive anxiety, the lockdowns, the mistrust in the police, it feels like the perfect storm for justified panic. It actually breaks my heart to think about this, but every single night out, my friends would always check, would check each other's backs and things like if I go out in Glasgow. Beck and I spoke for hours when I was up in Edinburgh. She told me about her party, the aftermath, her life as a student now. Okay, so this is what we spoke about on the phone, right? Yeah. So there's, um, I'm going to ask a couple of questions. I want to be very clear that it's not because I don't believe you. Yeah, no, definitely. Everything that we've just discussed, but... After she told me her story, I asked her if I could play her a clip from my interview with Adam from the drugs charity so she could hear what experts had to say about cases like hers. I want to be clear that it's not that I don't believe Becca. I just wanted to see what she made of the evidence I had gathered. I played Becca the clip where Adam explains the challenges of injecting strangers with drugs. How does hearing that make you feel? What does it make um, you think? It's, I, don't, I don't really know how to put that into words, but it's kind of just... Like, it's kind of made me feel a bit sick thinking about it because, for example, I was discouraged from, like, by NHS 24 from going to actually get a drugs test when that's what I requested. And um, I said that multiple times. I wanted, like, a report or something so I could kind of prove what was in my system. Um, the same with the police. I don't know. Like, I feel like it just kind of makes me feel like I've, I've just a bit, like, frustrated and, like, disheartened, like, hearing things like that as well. Um, because especially when it's been so like widespread with people sharing photos and things like that as well. Becca was visibly frustrated. And I wasn't surprised. She was given no way of finding out what happened to her, 
not from the NHS, who sent it to the police, or the police, who told her it would take a year to get results. If she'd been given a test, or at least more information about cases like hers, she might not have continued living in fear. Becca and I kept talking. We discussed the atmosphere on social media and the lack of information out there about spiking, whether that's drink spiking or needles. I think for a lot of the time on um, Twitter, for example, it was always seen to the point where I just kind of refused to look at things because I was too scared I'd just see. After hours of conversation, Becca sounded increasingly comforted by what Adam had said. And what do you think you would have felt if you had read something like what we just played you from Adam? If you had read that kind of information... How would that have contextualised what happened to you? I feel like um, if I'd seen it beforehand, I, I don't know, I feel as if I'd be a lot less scared than what I was. But um, I understand there's a lot of questioning around, like, how can this happen to so many people? Because obviously that's an expert speaking. And then there's so many people coming out and saying it's happened. So I understand there's a lot of disconnect between, like, how it could have happened. Mm. Um, but I think if I'd heard something like that at the time, I would have felt a lot more safer about it. I would have been less scared about going out in Edinburgh and things like that, for example. And do you think if you'd woken up with a bruise on your leg after reading that, do you think you would have felt the same way that you did? Um, I feel as if I would have still definitely phoned NHS Justice because there was a prick mark. like It was just like a wee tiny like red needle mark. So I think I still would have phoned the NHS, but maybe I would have felt more calmer about it. I don't know what I was expecting when I played Becca that clip. I thought she might feel angry or patronised. I even thought she might lash out at me, just like all those commenters on Sophia's TikTok. I wasn't expecting her to feel relief. Throughout this whole investigation, I kept going back to my conversation with Lucy, the journalist whose tweet went viral at the start of this story. She said that, ultimately, this is a story about fear. And I think that's true. But more than that, Becca's reaction made me realise that this is a story about trust. Becca ultimately trusted Adam's expertise, and that helped her contextualise what happened to her. It helped her feel, in her words, safer. And that's the thing. Women haven't been feeling safe. Because their trust in the police, and in men, is fundamentally broken. The murder of Sarah Evrard was the worst possible example of a system that is stacked against women. And that lack of trust, it feeds the fear. It was, I think, what led thousands of people to share their accounts on social media. It was what made the story sound plausible. But before Becca felt relieved, she felt angry. And she wasn't angry at me, like I thought she would be. She was angry at the system. She was angry at the police, who perhaps unintentionally convinced her not to report the crime. And she was angry at the NHS, who couldn't give her answers. One person I spoke to described our society's response to spiking as porous. Victims are sent back and forth between the police, the venue and the hospital, so the majority never get a chance to report. And if they do manage to get a test and report their case to the police, drink spiking doesn't even have a crime code. This means the police might record a sexual assault in their official record, but not the drink spiking if it also happened or they'll record it among other cases of poisoning. So we don't have a count. We just don't know how many women are being spiked every year. All of this means that when someone wakes up concerned that they've been spiked, they don't know where to go or who is going to help them. And it's in those holes, in this porous system, 
that the fear breeds. I can say now, with confidence, that I don't think an epidemic of needle spiking happened last autumn. But if it isn't already obvious, I still think this story matters. Immensely. Because we need to repair the trust. And because without trust, there is only fear. As we've mentioned throughout this story, the advice in spiking is not always clear. If you think you or a friend has been spiked and are feeling unwell, call 999 for an ambulance, especially if there's a loss of consciousness, breathing difficulties, or impaired sight. You can call 111 for any other health concerns. If you can, you should also make sure you alert the venue and report it to the police. This story was reported by me, Patricia Clark, and produced by Gary Marshall. The sound design was by Tom Kinsella. The editors were Basha Cummings and Kerry Thomas. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. Data journalism, the kind of stuff that Patricia does a lot of here at Tortoise, is really important to us. And so if you'd like to read more of what we do, our long reads, our data projects, or come to our live events, you can join Tortoise as my guest. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A-5-0. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? If it's possible, how are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.